So tonight's Bible reading comes from Haggai. Uh, Haggai is the third last book of the Old Testament. So if you find Matthew and go back about 20-ish pages, you will be able to find it. And I'll be reading from Haggai chapter 2, verse 10 to 23. That's Haggai chapter 2, verse 10 to 23. Hear the word of the Lord. On the 24th day of the ninth month, in the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came by Haggai the prophet. Thus says the Lord of hosts, ask the priests about the law. If someone carries holy meat in the fold of his garment and touches with his fold bread or stew or wine or oil or any kind of food, does it become holy? The priests answered and said, no. Then Haggai said, if someone who is unclean by contact with a dead body touches any of these, does it become unclean? The priests answered and said, it does become unclean. Then Haggai answered and said, So is it with this people and with this nation before me, declares the Lord, and so with every work of their hands. And what they offer there is unclean. Now consider, from this day onward, before stone was placed upon stone in the temple of the Lord, how did you fare? When one came to a heap of twenty measures, there were but ten. When one came to the wine vat to draw fifty measures, there were but twenty. I struck you and all the products of your toil with blight and with mildew and with hail, yet you did not turn to me, declares the Lord. Consider from this day onward, from the twenty-fourth day of the ninth month, since the day that the foundation of the Lord's temple was laid, consider, is the seed yet in the barn? Indeed, the vine, the fig tree, the pomegranate and the olive tree have yielded nothing. But from this day on, I will bless you. The word of the Lord came a second time to Haggai on the 24th day of the month. Speak to Zerubbabel, governor of Judah, saying, I'm about to shake the heavens and the earth and to overthrow the throne of kingdoms. I am about to destroy the strength of the kingdoms of the nations and overthrow the chariots and their riders. And the horses and their riders shall go down, everyone by the sword of his brother. On that day, declares the Lord of hosts, I will take you, O Zerubbabel, my servant, the son of Shealtiel, declares the Lord, and I will make you like a signet ring, for I have chosen you, declares the Lord of hosts. Thanks, Ed. Thank you so much. It's, uh, again, it's, it's wonderful to be here with you to open the word. I know what a fine tradition of preaching uh, this church has. If it's your first time here, uh, it gets a lot better than this 51 weeks of the year. Uh, it's so great that you guys have got Craig and Mark and Charles and Sean and so many other fine preachers, uh, not just now, but uh, in generations before that. And so intimidated by that great long list of preachers, I thought I'll pick one of the most obscure books and passages in the Bible to preach from. So hopefully it's the best sermon on Haggai 2 you've ever heard uh, by making it perhaps the only one. But of course, as we come to Haggai, there's one question we've all got, which is, where on earth is Haggai in the Bible? Uh, It's absolutely impossible to find. It's actually easier to find the book of Hezekiah in the Bible. And that's not even a Bible book. I made it up. Uh, It's not even real. That's how hard it is to find the book of Haggai. But at my my last job at a church, I was both the youth worker and the kids worker. And we had a little little tip. We'd teach the kids to find Haggai when we went through it with them. 
Uh, you can follow along if you want. If you've got your, your Bible on, on, on a smart device, that's absolutely fine. The Bible's often been on tablets and scrolls, so uh, we're just going back in time, not forward. We're not progressing. We're just going backwards. But if you've got a real book, here's how you do it, okay? Uh, if you close your Bible and then uh, open it right in the middle, you'll find the book of Psalms. Uh, and this is what we teach the little kids, all the way down from age four upwards, they can follow this. Then find anywhere in the New Testament, in the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And if you put a finger in there, now once you've got those two fingers in here, this is what you do. You close your Bible and open the contents page because it's impossible to find the book of Haggai. It is absolutely impossible to find it. In fact, I've lost my page uh, in doing that. And if you bear with me, Zephaniah, Hezekiah, yeah, Haggai, here we go. Because Haggai is so, uh, so unknown, I just uh, I took a punt and thought, let's do it. Uh, and it's hard to find, but it's actually even harder to read. It is a tricky little book, but it is short. You may even have time before bed tonight to finish it off by going back and reading chapter 1 and 2, 1 to 9. It's even harder to read and harder to feed from uh, because of how tricky it is. It's hard to read because of the history. Uh, we're just not as on board with the Bible's history as perhaps we like to think. Because if we unpack the Bible's history right from the beginning, you start with two guys, Adam and Eve, and then it goes to kind of Noah and the big boat and the flood and all the animals, the kind of floating zoo that happens. Then there's a Tower of Babel, and then there's a guy called Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. Jacob, also called Israel. That name's going to get real confusing through the whole story. Israel means 50 different things uh, all at once. And then he has 12 kids. One of them gets given a fancy coat. They don't like him. They beat him up. They send him down to Egypt. Once he's in Egypt, there's a famine in the old land. The other brothers come along. Please, can we come along? There's a, there's a cup and a donkey somewhere. And eventually the whole team joins and joins them in Egypt where there's loads of food uh, and seven fat cows and seven skinny cows and things like that. And then once they're down there, they then stay there and grow really numerous for 400 years. Then eventually the Pharaoh's like, oh, there's lots of Israelites. I don't like those guys so much. Let's keep them slaves. Let's make them make bricks, but without straw or mud or water or something. And Eventually, uh, they make a movie about it in a cartoon uh, called The Prince of Egypt. It's a documentary, and it's super exciting. There's all these, um, uh, there's all these curses that they get to, to, to set the people go, like the river gets turned to blood, and there's no Wi-Fi for a day or something like that. It's, it's horrible. Uh, and, and then eventually, they get let go. They go back to Israel, not the person. It's confusing, but the land's not even called Israel yet. But that's where they go. And there's a guy called Joshua who gets them through the land. That was a guy called Moses. And then they get there. Then it's all pretty good for a while. There's some, some heroes, some champions like Samson and Gideon. And everything's going really well. Eventually, they're like, we want a king. So they get a king. His name's uh, uh, Samuel and then David and then Solomon. Then eventually, the whole thing splits in two because they have a big fight about yada, yada, yada. And to make it real easy, um, everyone's name sounds exactly the same. So there's Jeroboam and Rehoboam all at the same time, which is great. The northern king. Kingdom, uh, goes off and they eventually get conquered uh, by the Assyrians. They get taken off 722 BC. The southern guys, they almost get conquered, but they go and ask Egypt for help, which is, Duh, Egypt aren't your friends, but they go and help them out. And so they last for another hundred or so years. Then eventually in 587, roughly, uh, BC, they get conquered by the Babylonians. Which is weird, because that's where this guy Abraham was from. And it's not good to be going back to your old country where originally your great-great-great-great-granddad was from. But that's what happens. They get taken off to Babylon. And that's when you get people like Daniel in the fiery furnace. And uh, he wasn't actually in the fiery furnace, but that's how we remember it. And, uh, and that whole stuff. And that's where that goes. And then uh, they eventually get set free uh, by the Persians. So you've got the Assyrians, the Babylonians, the Persians. And this is why we find Haggai tricky, because we're now under the Persian king a king called Darius. He's the uh, third Persian king that they have. 
since they've been freed from Babylon, now back in the promised land of Israel. So that's some of the history. Uh, And it's tricky to remember all of that and where we are, that it's 520 BC, that if you just opened Haggai all at once, it can be tricky. Haggai is also tricky to read because of some of the theology, some of the God things we learn from the book. Uh, Because it just doesn't seem to relate to us that well, that easily. Uh, You know, New Testament, give to the poor. Okay, I'll give to the poor. Uh, Pretty simple. Here it's talking about building the temple and being the people of God as well as a nation all in one. That Israel's to be Israel in Israel. And we think that sounds very political and confusing and we're not Israel in Israel being Israel. Instead, as they rebuild the temple, which got destroyed when the Babylonians came and took them over, it's a little bit like uh, bringing some of the church and growing the, the kingdom of God and people were coming to know Jesus. As we tell our friends and we help each other, we build God's temple, the church. And as you read last week's passage... We actually see it's not about them building the temple or us kind of building this temple, not the building, but the people. Instead, it's all about the future. Uh, It's about a a day when God will shake the heavens and the earth and all the peace and prosperity of the world will be brought into a new world. And so the theology, the God stuff is tricky in Haggai as it kind of jumps from then to now to future to then and now and future. It's also been hard because of the timings, the history, the theology, the timings. Haggai happens in about 520 BC. You can kind of Google that date. They've been back for about 20 years after they've been in Babylon for a while. So that means roughly the book kind of starts around July when it's coldest here. It would have been warm for them. Uh, And then the middle bit of the book starts uh, in around that kind of um, uh, term three, four holiday break in September, October. Here at the end of the book is about the same time uh, that your Christmas lights are going up. That's the timing of the book. It all happens in a kind of six-month span. But most of all, Haggai is hard to read because of the challenge it presents for Christians. The challenge to them then was that they, would, they were putting themselves before God, seen in their nicely done-up houses, while God's house, the temple, was a wreck. And that was that's a challenge for us too. Is God number one? Sure, he's, he's always going to be kind of top 10. But is God number one? Is building for his glory, his fame, his people our number one priority? Or is the diary filling up with other good but distracting things? That's a challenge for us. They listened and they started to build the temple back then. They heard God's word and saw his worth and so they got to work. And our prayer is, as you go back and read Haggai, is that we would do the same, building up God's people by making and growing followers of Jesus. So let's finish off Haggai with a little overview of what's happened already by starting in chapter 2, verse 10, where Haggai uh, has his third word from the Lord, verse 11. Uh, and it starts with a little quiz for the priests, the kind of uh, the Craig and Marks of the day back in those times. It starts with a little quiz for them where we're going to see our first point. God's blessing isn't something we learn. God's blessing isn't something we learn. The quiz starts in verse 12. Have a look down at verse 12. If someone carries holy meat in the fold of his garment and touches with his fold bread or stew or wine or oil or any kind of food, does it become holy? 
You don't need to go to priest school for this one. If you buy a bunch of flowers and some manure in your boot and they roll around in the boot of your car, does the manure come out smelling like roses? No. Verse 12, the priests answer, no. Goodness and holiness don't travel from one thing to another. God's blessing, similarly, isn't something we learn or catch from someone else. You can't improve something just by putting it next to something better. That's why you never see broccoli next to a chocolate fondue. It still doesn't get rid of the broccoliness of broccoli. God's blessing isn't something you learn or catch like a cold in the same way that uh, holy meat in the fold of a garment won't make other meat better just by touching it. To check they've got the point, Haggai asks the reverse logic in verse 13. Uh, if someone who is unclean by contact with a dead body touches any of these, does it become unclean? So he's asking the opposite this time. Would we uh, say you've got a friend here who's um, uh, working in a morgue? Uh, he's got the Sunday shift. He finishes at 7.30. He turns up at the end of the service and is uh, offering round morning tea. And he picks up a biscuit and gives it to you. And you suspect he might not have washed his hands that well. To what extent are you happy to take that, you know, dead-handed biscuit from him? Probably not that much. If someone takes uh, that bag of manure and works on it in the garden, what's the first thing they say as they walk in the house? Hey, Wash your hands, because if you don't, that will spread dirt everywhere. In the same way that holiness and goodness is not contagious, i.e. holy meat in the fold of your garment won't make other meat good, in the same way that holiness and goodness is not contagious, you can't learn it from something else. In the same way, unholiness is contagious. You can't help but learn it from everything else. Manure bumping into roses doesn't make the manure smell like roses. Manure touching you will make everything dirty around you. And Haggai is asking the question because maybe they thought to themselves this back then. I've been building the temple for two months now. I've been a good little boy. I've put aside my own home renovations. Surely some of the temple magic is rubbing off on me. Surely I'm becoming holy and God will now definitely bless me because I've been touching the temple and building it. So Haggai drops a bomb for them in verse 14. So, it is, so, is, so is it with this people and with this nation before me, declares the Lord. Just like broccoli and a chocolate fondue, so and so with every work of their hands, what they offer is unclean. Good meat touching normal food doesn't make normal food holy. Chocolate fondue doesn't make broccoli taste nice. Taking a tour of Buckingham Palace doesn't make us royal. Just sitting in the library with some books open doesn't make you clever. And helping to build the temple didn't make them holy either. God's blessing, God's goodness to us isn't something you learn, you just catch, you just get by just being near holy things. They've got the opposite of the mitre's touch. Instead of everything turning to gold, it turns to mold. And so they are not blessed. Because God's blessing isn't something you, you learn by just being near good things. And why is this? 
Well, because of our brokenness, our sin, our love of things other than God on that list of 10. It's so serious, so deep that it won't scrub off us and goodness won't scrub on us. So we can't think that just because I'm here tonight, that God is somehow more pleased with us. Or just because I've got a Bible in my hands, I'm okay. Because I served on a crew camp or, or, or did one of the wonderful things that have been announced tonight, God loves me a little bit more. We can't be deluded like the Israelites here that just because their hands were dirty with the work of the temple, that somehow their hearts were now clean. It's the thinking of, of uh, in England, it goes something like this. Well, my grandfather was a vicar. I was baptized as a baby. I was, uh, received communion uh, and confirmation when I was in school. Or maybe uh, today for other church goes, it's, well, I'm an elder. I'm on some sort of committee. I even brought a friend to an event last year that they talked about up front and told us to bring friends to. <laughs> well, my attendance is pretty good. It's a sort of thinking that I've heard parents say to me as a youth worker, that look, the youth group, I just want it to be enough of the Bible teaching. I just want it to be a nice, safe place where my child can be with nice, safe children and they will be all right. And I think, well, do you really know your child? And do you know other people's children? <laughs> they won't be all right just being nice, safe children with other nice, safe children. Sin is too serious. Our love of other things is too wide. Our separation from God is too high. Our problem here is too deep that it will not scrub off and goodness will not rub on. Just because our hands are dirty with God's work, it does not mean our hearts are clean. And therefore, God's blessing is not something we learn. At this middle of December, word of the Lord carries on in the next paragraph where we see our second point. God's blessing isn't something we earn. God's blessing isn't something we learn and it's not something we earn. Haggai thinks this is really important, so he keeps on going with pretty much the same point. Just because building the temple doesn't make them a big deal. Haggai wants this point to sink in and stay in in verse 15. Now then, verse 15. Now then, consider from this day onward, before stone was placed upon stone in the temple of the Lord, how did you fare? How did you fare before the temple? They've got to think about it, and so do we. And to move forward for them, they've got to look back before the temple was started. Remember before the temple, God says in 16, how you went. Uh, you went for 20 measures, but only got 10. Or remember how you went to go pour a glass of wine and you thought there were 50 measures, but you only got 20. Life sucked before the temple was there. It absolutely sucked. It's like uh, they went to the ATM to press the button for $50 and only 20 came out. You filled up your car with a tank of petrol, but when you start the engine, the needle only goes to halfway. Life sucked without God for them. God's blessing was not with them. And this was so that they would look to God and say, something's wrong and broken, please fix it. Verse 17, I struck you, he says, with all the products of your toil, with blight and with mildew and hail. Yet you did not turn to me, declares the Lord. Life sucked. There was mold in the cookie jar, damp in the walls and hail outside. And that was so they could remember, repent and return to God. It's, uh, it's interesting that's what sometimes suffering does. Interesting that at big moments of suffering in the world, Something like, let's take something historical in the past uh, 20 years, or something like 9-11. That it both drew some people away from God 
and really kick-started some of the new atheists who are now kind of old, uh, like Christopher Hitchens and things. But it also quadrupled the size of Tim Keller's church, Redeemer, in New York. That it, sometimes a, a calamitous moment of suffering does make people think the world's not right. Therefore, I must come back to him. And that's what God is doing here for them. I struck you with that, yet you did not turn to me. They think that they can learn God's blessing by being near the temple. But here, they seem to think they can earn God's blessing by now building the temple. Chapter 1 of Haggai, they thought it was their right to be blessed. Chapter 2, they thought it was their might that would get them blessed. But they had neither the right nor the might to be blessed. And so verse 19, he has to ask them some hard questions. Even though they worked with their hands, because their hearts were far from God, there's still no blessing. 19, is there seed yet in the barn? Indeed, the vine, the fig tree, the pomegranate and the olive trees have yielded nothing. The temple work had gone on for two solid months, but the barns were still empty. There was no grapes on the vine, not a fig could be found. They had no pomegranate to their names. The olive trees were only used for shade. What do we learn? That just because you do some work for God does not mean we should automatically expect anything from God. That we do not count on our work for the blessings of God. We have neither the right nor the might to get them for ourselves. We cannot earn or learn anything from him. And what they experienced physically with having empty shelves at Coles, we experience spiritually. All the benefits of being part of God's people today cannot be learned or earned. But our benefits are not a full fruit basket. But God's blessings now are just as real, but more eternal. We may look persecuted and poor, failing and frail. Here's our blessing that we receive. For them... They didn't have blessings, so the supermarket was empty. But when they would get the blessing, it would look like a full supermarket. For us, it's not that. Our blessings are these. But they're equally as real. Forgiveness of sin. The promise of a resurrection and a new world. The power of the Holy Spirit in our lives. The fellowship of believers. The communion of saints. They are not many of them physical, but they are real blessings from God. All found in Jesus Christ. That is our blessing now. And they, like them then, cannot be learned by being near good things or earned by doing good things. God is not some sort of Coke machine that in goes the service and out comes the blessing. God is not some kind of flybys reward system where if I'm loyal enough and have stacked up enough points, beep, I can get a, 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 a set of pots and pans I don't really need. I must, I must get something in return, we think. But God's blessing isn't given from our obedience, but for our obedience. You know, Israel here is acting like a teenager who runs away from home. And then when he returns, he tidies his room. Then he thinks that everything is instantly okay again. I tidy my room, mum. Is that that enough for you? And the parent says, (laughs) you don't get it. It's not a tidy room I wanted. I could have paid a cleaner to do that. I wanted you. But even now I can sense your heart is not here. With a prophet like Haggai, we have to ask why Israel 
why Israel kept, uh, kept going all those years. They would have found it hard to find, uh, they would have found Haggai hard to find like we do. Well, why did Israel keep this little book? Uh, why would they keep it in their scriptures? They've got 65 uh, others, why would they keep it? Or just Old Testament, they've got 38 others. Why would they keep it? It's so small, so insignificant. Why would they keep it? Uh, they would have found it hard to discover like we did, even with their scrolls and tablets. Why would they keep it when it's so damning of their hard work and their hard work? What is there for them in this other than, look, you've got no right and no might. You're not going to get God's blessing. Why would they keep that around? It's like uh, keeping, uh, you know, a card from a, a girl who dumped you once and just keeping that around. Why would you keep it? Well, they'd keep it because of the very last few words in verse 19. God asks, is the seed in the barn? No. The vine, the fig tree, the pomegranate, the olive tree, they've yielded nothing from your work and your labor. But God then declares this, but from this day on, I will bless you. God's blessing isn't available for us to learn or earn, but God's blessing is available if we turn. It all rhymes. It's clear, isn't it? Not if we learn or earn, but if we turn. Despite all their problems uh, that God's holiness uh, can't scrub off or rub off on them, that they can't get God's holiness by might or by right, he will still bless them. So the next question is, how is he going to do it? How will God bless an unblessworthy people? Well, it carries on in, in 20 to 23 by saying it's going to happen through this chap, Zerubbabel. It's a great name to say. Uh, on your own later, it's a little bit weird to do out loud. Just say Zerubbabel. It's hard not to smile at the end of it. It's great fun. Uh, Haggai gets a second word of the Lord in verse 20. And it says that uh, on, the, on, on this day in December... Uh, in 520 BC, and this one addresses the governor Zerubbabel. So while Darius is the Persian king, remember the whole Bible story, Assyrians take the northern tribe, Babylonians take the southern tribe, they then come back under the Persians. The third king of those is a, a guy called Darius. While he is kind of in charge, Zerubbabel was the Jewish man they kind of install. Uh, and so, do you know what, boy, I've just forgotten the name of both our prime minister and our and the, the governor of WA. It was easier when it was the other guy and the one that was here during COVID. Anyway, shows how relevant politicians are, doesn't it? The guy that's Albo. Uh, Albo will be like Darius, and then the guy that took over from McGowan, <laughs> as he'll always be known. Uh, he's the kind of, he's the little guy in charge of just this little, this little uh, outpost. Uh, Zerubbabel was the Jewish man in charge. Now, Zerubbabel's granddad, he was told that he would have the signet ring ripped off him and taken into Babylon. And that's what the signet ring was. It was a sign of power, of authority. It belonged to the line of King David. Well, that last Jewish king had a son called Shealtiel. And he had a son called Zerubbabel. Again, so Zerubbabel had a kid called Shealtiel who had a kid called Zerubbabel. And he was allowed to return to Jerusalem but with the title of governor, no longer king, not yet fully in charge. And he gets the signet ring put back on him. The way that he will get the authority and power back is by the world being shaken in verse 21. Earlier in chapter two, the earth was shaken, bringing out the glory. Now it's bringing out the big guns as God overthrows chariots and thrones, royalty and riders. God will fully and finally publicly and powerfully show the world who is king. 
and those not on board with that king will be overturned. But it's not as you'd think King Darius, the Persian guy, though he looked like the big king in charge. The king actually is God's man, Zerubbabel, in the line of that King David that we talked about earlier, who had Solomon, who then split the whole thing. And uh, that's the king that God is talking about here. God will take his servant, and he's called it in verse 23, he's called the king, and he's making him his chosen king. I'll make a signet ring for you. I have chosen you, declares the Lord of hosts. And around the time we celebrate Christmas, Jews celebrate a thing called Hanukkah. And as part of those celebrations, Jews today still sing a song about Zerubbabel as the one who saved them from those 70 years in Babylon in exile. So in their minds, this king Zerubbabel is a saviour. So in Zerubbabel, we've got a son, Zerubbabel had Shealtiel, who had Zerubbabel. We've got a son who's a king, who's from David's line, who's a servant, it says, who saves. And that is how God will bless his people. God is determined to bless, even though we're defiled. And it's through, not their works, or their wonder, not through their might or their right, but through God's king. We cannot earn God's blessing or learn God's blessing. But if we turn to Zerubbabel, God's son, servant, king, saviour, we will be saved by being part of his family with eternal life, with forgiveness of sin, the fellowship of believers and the communion of saints, we will be blessed, but only if we turn. So have you done that? Have you done that? How do you know? How do you know? How do you know if you've done that? Because I guess there'll be two guys working on the temple, chisel, 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 and it's hard to tell the difference. Uh, One guy is doing it to earn God's blessing, thinking he can learn God's blessing by just being near the temple. The other guy is doing it because he's turned to God's king. How do you know who's chiseling in which way? It's hard to tell the difference. Both would have mud on their hands and their boots and sweat on their brow. Both would have a little picnic lunch and a hard hat on. So you'd have to look at their hearts. You'd have to be able to see whether they're working for God's love or from God's love. It's hard for us to tell too, as we serve God in any area of life, whether we're doing it to earn or learn a blessing from God or whether we have turned But a diagnostic question would be something like this. When things go well in my life, do I turn to God in praise or do I turn to myself in pride? Because if it's pride, then secretly I still think that it's my right or my might that builds my relationship up to God, that I've learned or earned his blessing somehow from my little temple building, whatever it may be. And when things go badly in my life, do I turn to God in prayer or do I turn to myself in pride? Even the pride, say we've done some stupid sin we know we shouldn't do, the pride that beats myself up for my mistake, that secretly shows I thought it was up to me all along, that it was my might or my right that kept me right with God. See, there's pride and insecurity and guilt that says I've let myself down So God now could never bless me or love me because I haven't earned it or learnt it enough because we don't trust that he says, I will bless you. 
from this day. That we can't earn it or learn it. Instead, it's only when we turn to King Zerubbabel. But of course, we know it's not King Zerubbabel. Because <laughs> it never comes true. He never actually got the signet ring or the power. Because when you promise something to one king, you promise it to all the kings in that family tree, of course. That's why this book still exists. That's why the Israelites kept Haggai around, despite how hard it is to find and how challenging it is. Because their king, their royal household would stick to this saying, hey, look, God, I've got the receipts. You promised me something. You promised us something, but you still haven't given it yet. Where is our king? Where's our victory? Where is our peace and our hope? Where is Zerubbabel's son or grandson or great-grandson that will give us all we need? Where's the chosen one that you've promised, the servant who will save? Where's the one from David's line that will rescue? They could look at Haggai and say to God, where is it all? That will give us not just a temple, but a dwelling in our hearts so we can know God. Where's the one to whom we should turn to be blessed by God? if we cannot earn it or learn it. Well, fast forward the 20 pages that Ariel mentioned earlier, and this is what Matthew 1 says. After the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel, and Shealtiel the father of Zerubbabel. And Zerubbabel, the father of Abiad, and Abiad, the father of Eliakim, and Eliakim, the father of Azor, and Azor, the father of Zadok, and Zadok, the father of Achim, and Achim, the father of Eliad, and Eliad, the father of Eleazar, and Eleazar, the father of Mathan, and Mathan, the father of Jacob, and Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who's called the Christ. We cannot earn it. We cannot learn it. But when we turn... It's all ours in the Lord Jesus Christ. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for the book of Haggai. Strange as it is, as hard as we find it, Lord, thank you so much that as we read it, we realize it's the same message throughout. That it's one book with one message, with one man and one wonderful Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, I don't know what these people here have got in the week ahead of them whether it's going to be victory or loss, whether it's going to be suffering and sacrifice or or ease and comfort, whatever it may be, Lord, for each of us, would we know that we cannot earn your blessing or learn your blessing from something else? Instead, help us to turn and not even trust our turning to save us, but trust the one we turn to to save us, that great, great, great grandson of Zerubbabel, Jesus. And as we turn to him, would we know more fully and more truly all the wonderful blessings that are real in him, though we have them by faith and not by sight. Amen.